So the first thing that I want to say, seeing as how the title of this, this, um, this event is Jerusalem Perspectives from Without and Within, um, I am the without side of that um, binary. The first thing I want to say is that uh, Jerusalem is not my city. Um, and it never will be my city as well. When I was researching and writing this book, I was very aware of 150 years, maybe even more, 175, almost 200 years of people like me, white, um, English-speaking, middle-aged, middle-class um, men, in particular men as well, uh, claiming Jerusalem for themselves, um, sometimes for themselves, sometimes for their nation, uh, sometimes you know, coming in and claiming it for Christianity, and then proceeding to tell everybody at length, um, often in print, why their claim and why their opinion matters so very much. Um, that's not why I've done what I've done, as I hope you'll see if you get a chance to read the book as well. I wrote this book because I could see an imbalance in narratives about Jerusalem in my culture, in English-speaking culture. Um, I'm very lucky to have uh, a platform from which to speak, and I wanted to use that to help redress the balance. It's a tricky word, um, balance. We hear it most um, in relation to the news media, where it conjures these images of a seesaw. You know, It implies there are two sides, and in this case, um, you know, an Israeli side, which is very often conflated with Jewish, and a Palestinian side. Uh, and the wisdom runs, if you devote equal resources to both sides, the seesaw will be level. You know, you will have achieved balance in your coverage. Uh, but as I set out to show in this book, Jerusalem has many more sides than two. It's misleading, terribly misleading, to reduce Jerusalem um, just to two sides. That idea of two sides, and particularly ideas about two sides being irreconcilable, are a fiction. Any balance that may result from treating two sides equally will never be an equitable balance because Israel has the overwhelmingly larger proportion of uh, resources, assets, status, visibility, power, money. The seesaw is not level to begin with. And so to achieve an equitable balance, one must act unequally. So in this book, I haven't taken equal numbers of stories about uh, Jewish people and Jewish Jerusalem and everybody else and set them against each other. This book favors those who begin with fewer advantages. I'm, I'm deliberately choosing to amplify the unlistened to. I'm very lucky to have been visiting Jerusalem since I was a child, 40-something um, years ago. My first visit was in 1980, um, when I was 11. Um, and then in 1982, my father arranged for me to have my bar mitzvah twice, once in the synagogue that we used at home in, in London, and again at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And I've been coming back um, all my life, traveling, living, working, visiting. Uh, what I put on the screen is an image um, of the old city of Jerusalem, which is, uh, in case anybody doesn't know, it's the walled area behind these, uh, these uh, 400, 450 year old walls at the center of the city. Um, and it's not a big place as well. The area inside the walls uh, is less than one square kilometer, but about 35,000 people live there, 90% of whom are Palestinian. One motivation for me writing this book was on all of those visits when I, over my teens and when I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s, was seeing how people like me, tourists, um, visitors, pilgrims, outsiders, uh, marginalize the people who live and work, raise their kids, go to school, run a business inside the old city. What I was seeing and this is not, um, maybe we can talk about this later as well with Bissan, this is not exclusive to Jerusalem. This happens, I think, with touristed cities the world over. But people were visiting um, with a tick box. You know, they were coming specifically in order to uh, pray at the church, to 
visit the mosque to kiss the western wall and so very often these are journeys of of you know a lifetime of spiritual uh, endeavor has reached its culmination and people come and they discover that between themselves and their holy place with whatever it is there's all this life there's all these people people going to school as i said people running a business or people moving from one place to another whatever um there was a lot of disrespect from people like me towards the people whose home they were visiting um that obviously didn't feel right to me and i spent a long time sort of looking at it and understanding it and trying to to work out how i could uh, uh deconstruct it write something against it um, and another motivation for me writing this book was seeing how the reality of the old city didn't match up to all the maps that the visitors and outsiders like me were using. So on the on the screen, I put up um, images which I've taken from uh, news media online, but they're very similar to uh, tourist maps that you might see in a in a guidebook or on a on a on a on a tourist um, in a tourist publication which show the old city divided into four these four quarters christian quarter muslim quarter armenian quarter and jewish quarter with these very often sharp clear dividing lines between them but as i knew from having spent time there and as certainly bisan will know and other people who spent any time there there are no dividing lines between the christian quarter and the muslim quarter um that line on the map is just a street. It's a market street. It's not very wide. It's it's two or three meters wide, and there are shops on both sides, and there are people on both sides. It's not even really both sides. It's just a market lane. Um, this idea of division, and particularly the idea of exclusivity, doesn't make any sense. There are churches in the Muslim quarter, and there are mosques in the Jewish quarter, and there are sort of people living everywhere. But people approaching Jerusalem for the first time might imagine you know, this is a holy city, they might imagine that these quarters are somehow holy. They see them on the map, they see them reproduced everywhere. This is a holy city that's obviously been divided into these holy quarters. That's a mistake. But from that mistake, it's then a short step to the next mistake, which is thinking that perhaps uh, Christians aren't even allowed into the Muslim quarter, or that Jews may not enter the Armenian quarter. So then you have the situation where a Christian visitor thinks that the Muslim quarter is somehow enemy territory or something. It's, it, the whole thing is mad. None of it makes any sense. These sorts of maps struck me as being a very Western conception. Um, they reminded me particularly of um, atlases of, of the United States, where all the, the state boundaries, sort of, or oh, a map of Europe as well, where the state boundaries lock together very neatly. Um, there's a point in the in the Western US where uh, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico all meet at a four corners point. And if you look at the map on the right on the screen at the moment, um, there's a there was a strong visual parallel there at least. But it also felt very instructive because you know what's invisible in that formulation are the indigenous lands of the Native American people. That in this case, the Navajo and the Hopi tribes who live in that area, which were erased by US state borders. You can't see them on the map. They've been imposed afterwards. And in a similar way, in the Jerusalem context, um, the reality of uh, the indigenous um, uh, psychogeography, if you like, of the city is subsumed beneath this imposition of four quarters. These four quarters, they don't leave any room for, for fuzziness or for the, the organic uh, messiness of, of urban life. So, you know, where did this idea of the four quarters come from? I started to do some research. Um, these are four early maps of Jerusalem. Um, the one at the top is the oldest surviving map that we have today, which is a mosaic map of Jerusalem laid on the floor of a church um, in, in what's now Jordan. And from then, all through the Middle Ages, as you can see, Jerusalem was depicted in this idealized form as a almost as a as a European style castle, fortified city, um, which bore no relation to reality. Maps at that time in particular were an idealized representation of place. They were often drawn after travel. People would travel on the ground by word of mouth. 
using guides, using local people, using local knowledge. Maps were used as a way to depict how an individual or often a community conceived of a place after they got back home as part of a, of a, of a processing and an understanding of what that journey had meant. But equally, all through this, the same era, we have Arabic sources that speak of Jerusalem as a mixed cluster of neighborhoods. One historian talks of 39 quarters of Jerusalem um, in the 13th and 14th century. Another one speaks of 18 quarters of Jerusalem in 1495. These were organic. These neighborhoods developed from the bottom up. And that situation lasted right through to Napoleon. So in 1798, Napoleon invades Egypt and then also Palestine as well. He brings, um, as well as military forces, artists and scholars and scientists and explorers that form this surge of interest in Europe, in, in Arab and Turkish culture. Um, and we see the first map of Jerusalem based uh, not in this idealized form, but on measurements taken in the field appearing shortly after. This is it. It appeared in 1818. Um, there's lots to say about it. It's a, it's a fascinating map. Um, as you can see, it's it's tilted around. So in this map, instead of north being at the top, east is at the top. Um, and you can see open areas within the walls. There's a lot to say, but I'm going to focus in on, on the, the story of the quarters. What I've highlighted in the middle there is the only label referring to ethno-religious settlement. And that's a, a label which says Judenstadt, which means Jewish city or Jewish quarter. This map is the next major cartographic advance. This is from 1835 um, by the English explorer Frederick Catherwood. Again, you know, it's a fascinating map. There's tons to enjoy. But again, the only quarter label is a Jews quarter. Um, and that reflects um, a European idea of, of what is important, what's, what's graspable, and what is uh, portrayable within the city. As well, uh, I've marked these are hard to see, but we can see um, three other labels we see the Armenian convent and the Greek convent and the Latin convent, which are areas of Christian settlement around these, uh, these uh, churches, which again reflects European concerns about who they're finding when they come to Jerusalem. Next came a map by Hermann Engel of Vienna, published in 1837. And again, there's a Jewish quarter, but now we start to see a Turkish quarter and a Greek quarter, and an Armenian quarter, and also a Latin quarter. As far as I'm aware, this is the first time that these quarter names appear on a map. Now, this period, the 1830s, was a time of political upheaval in Jerusalem, and also in all of Palestine as well. There'd been a rebellion led from Egypt, which had challenged Ottoman rule, there was a popular uprising in Palestine itself, which led to a power vacuum. The European powers were jockeying for position, trying to restore order, but also to take advantage of the instability to advance their own interests as well. Um, this is a period when we see foreign consulates opening for the first time in Jerusalem as well. Uh, and then in 1840, Britain, um, after a diplomatic initiative had failed, Britain did what it often did at this time and also later. It essentially bombed Palestine into submission um, and then handed it back to the Ottoman Sultan. But British military forces remained. Um, and particularly, there was a team of royal engineers who were sent out to survey the terrain of Palestine up and down the coast. And in 1841, two of them arrived to survey Jerusalem. But that conflict of 1840 wasn't just about geopolitics. British um, evangelical Protestant missionaries had long had their eye on the people of the Ottoman Empire to convert, but they were unable to convert Muslims because Ottoman law at that time stipulated death for people who converted away from Islam. They couldn't convert Catholics or Orthodox Christians either, partly because there wasn't uh, any willingness or very little willingness within those communities to convert, and also partly because France was protecting Catholic rights and Imperial Russia was protecting Orthodox rights. So if you start to mess with the communal balance and you start to kick off a diplomatic ruckus, which was not advantageous to Britain at that time, and there had long been, and in fact there still is, a strain in Protestant 
evangelical thinking that saw the conversion of the Jews as a necessary prelude to the second coming of Christ. So at this time, we see virtually all British efforts going into converting Jews, which meant that they needed to know exactly who lived where. Britain appointed at this time the first Protestant bishop of Jerusalem, who's a man called Michael Alexander, um, who appropriately enough was actually formerly a rabbi who converted to Christianity. He arrived in early 1842, and with him was a young chaplain whose name was George Williams. He was aged 27. He fancied himself a bit of a scholar. Um, he was only in Jerusalem just over a year and then was posted elsewhere to uh, St. Petersburg and to Dublin and other places. In 1849, he published a new edition of his book, The Holy City, as you can see on the screen. And it included a map, which was drawn from the Royal Engineers Survey of a few years previously, but William, uh, Williams had added labeling to it, including Christian quarter, Armenian quarter, Jewish quarter, Muslim quarter. As far as I can tell, George Williams was the instigator of the four quarters. Maps before him did not show them. And just about every single map ever made since him has shown them. There's a direct line from George Williams in 1849 to the maps of Jerusalem that we all see and use today, reinforced in the media in literature, in academia, in guidebooks, on tourist maps, in, in every conceivable medium. Why has this idea of the four quarters survived? As the work um, of an increasing number of historians, people like um, Salim Tamari, Vincent Lemaya, Michelle Campos, uh, Roberto Mazza, Sarah Irving, and many others who, what they've done is the foundation of anything that I've done. Um, as their work is now showing, it survived because it suits the colonial ambitions of successive waves of rulers of Jerusalem, right down to our own time. You know, these quarters are false. They were invented by a 19th century Old Etonian missionary. They always were false. But it suited Jerusalem's colonizers to divide the city's populations against themselves, to foster sectarian division. Williams himself, there's an extract from his book on the screen, was even aware that he was deliberately marginalizing the lived experience of Jerusalem's own people. Um, if you remember, the 39 quarters from the 13th century and the, and the 18 quarters from 1495, and even today, if you think of all the communities, all the different uh, ethnicities and religions and social identifications that live and work inside the old city of Jerusalem, for Williams, and for all of Jerusalem's mapmakers since, they are all, as it says on the screen, numerous, but unimportant. Yeah, I beg to differ. Those subdivisions, which reflect the mixed nature of the city's population, are very important. Um, as a journalist, I'm specifically interested in how we think of Jerusalem. We, uh, meaning outsiders, but also insiders, Jerusalemites themselves, when the city is only ever depicted uh, as divided into sectarian, ethno-religious quarters. It's something um, I'd really like to hear Bissan's take on uh, later when I'm done. How Palestinian Jerusalemites tend to fall back on the four quarters when, uh, when they showcase their own city for outside consumption, even though they don't use the quarters themselves. Um, you know, I'm very interested in, in why the traditional neighborhood uh, designations only really survive in Arabic, and they aren't identified at all for outside visitors. Um, but that's something maybe we can come to. To return to our map briefly, to try and take in some of Jerusalem's many marginalized communities of today, I spent some time talking to and also writing about um, the people at the Indian hospice, which I identified on the map up in the corner there. Um, Jerusalem has many of these hospices, which um, in this context, the word refers to a Muslim religious institution, specifically one related to uh, Sufism, to, to Islamic mysticism. Um, this is a really fascinating place. It commemorates um, a legendary visit to Jerusalem 800 years ago, 
um, by Baba Farid, um, who is one of India's most celebrated mystics. And Baba Farid is supposed to have uh, come to Jerusalem and meditated for 40 days, and there's still a cave and a small mosque within the, the boundaries of the, of the Indian hospice compound, which is now home to a small cluster of Indian-Palestinian families, or rather one extended Indian-Palestinian family. Um, just nearby is the Afghaniya hospice and the Bukhariya hospice, this little community with this centuries-long tradition of hosting Muslims from Bukhara and from the neighboring lands of Central Asia, um, Uzbeks and Tajiks and Turkmen and Afghans and Uyghurs and, and many others as well. And nearby to that is a neighborhood that's home to Jerusalem's Dom families um, who self-identify in English as gypsies. Um, that word, particularly in English, has a, has a troubled history. It was invented um, around the 15th century or so because English people thought that the newcomers they could see coming into their country among them came from Egypt. So they called them gypsies, which is a, a truncation of Egypt. Um, but uh, in English, and you know, since then, uh, the word gypsy has, has taken on these, uh, for some people, pejorative overtones. Um, but uh, the Dom people themselves in English choose, as I say, to self-identify with the word gypsy. So I'm following their lead. Um, their history is also fascinating. It begins with waves of migration about 1500 years ago, not out of Egypt, but out of India. Um, and Dom uh, people have lived inside the walls of Jerusalem for 200 years or more. Uh, the lady on the screen um, is Amun Slim. Um, who's really an extraordinary person. She was very generous to me in, in telling me her story and telling me the story of her people as well. Um, she's done some amazing work um, building community support networks among the Dom um, who suffer terribly from uh, racism and discrimination. They don't identify either as Israeli or as Palestinian. They identify as Dom. They occupy this tiny space in between these two larger uh, majority communities. Um, and so uh, they tend to suffer um, from racism and discrimination from both sides as a result. Uh, Dom children very rarely uh, graduate from school. Um, there's a very high unemployment among the community. Uh, any jobs that are followed tend to be very menial service jobs, often in, in drain cleaning or sewage or this sort of work. Um, and Amun has done extraordinary work um, uh, uh, raising uh, the prospect of opportunities within her community, putting Dom kids through after-school clubs um, that have helped them to graduate and to move on to college or university, um, introducing vocational classes for, um, for women to, to, to train in new skills, uh, running language schools as well, language classes for, for adults, um, to also to improve opportunity. Um, she's, uh, she's an extraordinary person. Um, it was a real privilege um, to be able to meet her and to write about her um, as well. Um, close by is a center of African settlement, right at the gates of Al-Aqsa. This is a community of about 450 Muslim people who have their origins in West and Central Africa. Um, and I'm hoping also that Bissan will talk about this a little bit as well. He has very close um, first-hand uh, uh, knowledge and experience of this community. Um, on the screen is uh, is Musa Musa Kous, who volunteers at the African Community Centre. Um, but as I was writing this book, you know, all of this served to reinforce for me that if your history of Jerusalem doesn't include Black history, Dom history, Indian history, you know, you're not telling the whole story of the city. There's much, much more. Um, that I can say. I've got my eye on the clock. Um, there's a lot that I want to say. I've lined up um, many other stories to do also with the Moroccan Quarter and, and other minority communities around Jerusalem. Um, but I do want to stop there uh, because I'm very keen to bring in Bisan Abu Aisha, uh, who, as I said, was born and brought up in the African-Palestinian community. So I'm going to hand over the floor to him, but I want to, I want to kick him off, if I can, Bisan, with a, with a couple of questions. Um, First is, uh, you know, have I got it right? Does it feel to you um, that what I'm saying 
in what I've said up to this point, does it ring true to you or not? Um, and second, as a, in addition to that, what I would ask you, what do you feel as someone who was born and brought up in the old city, what do you feel the imposition of the four quarters has done to Jerusalem, has done specifically to the old city? And, and, and what do you think of it? What's, what's your take on the four quarters? Yeah. I actually, I will. I will start. Thank you very. Thank you very much. I'm going to uh, stop sharing. Sorry. As thank well. you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for uh, this amazing presentation. I think uh, what you said resonated a lot uh, with my experience of what I know about Jerusalem. Um, I'm sorry. Let me just. Yeah. Um, I would start with the second question about like, what do I feel about the four quarters? Or, or maybe I can answer both questions at once because you said at the beginning that this is not your city. And my position here is that I feel that this is my city, not in the sense of like ownership, but in the sense is that this place made me uh, the person I am nowadays. Everything I have done in my life uh, happened because of inspirations that I um, accumulated while while I was living in the city, and uh, and this was like your book was the closest. Not that I have read so many books about about Jerusalem, uh, but your book was the closest thing that I have ever read about. Uh, uh, you know, thank you. The, the 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 real picture or the real image that I that they, through it I understand uh, Jerusalem, not as a divided city. I, when, I, when, I, when, I, um, when I was growing up in, in like, you know, I, I was born outside of the old city, but then we relocated and my, my mom comes from um, the African community because her father is originally, he arrived originally from Chad in the early 20th century. And they, um, they settled over there and as a, as a, as a child, I have always felt negative about the many, uh, many, many waves of tourism that are invading the city, not because of, not because of crowds or noise or stuff like that, but because I felt that whatever, whatever they do is completely disconnected from, from the reality that I understand or the reality that I know about Jerusalem, at least, at least as a child. Uh, it felt to me that these people Come some sort like they they arrive blinded or kind of like their eyes are covered with 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 pre-structured narratives that they are trying to locate in the city. They are like it's like treasure hunt, treasure hunting. They have and and this this I'm, I'm like I'm not referring to specifically a particular religion. I'm talking about even non-religious waves of tourism, which are uh, which are uh, you know uh, you know. Keep, like until this moment, keep keep visiting the city, and I didn't know. I never, I never had, I never had uh, the tools to to deal with it. I, you know, I was just, you know, a, a child growing in the city. I never knew what how I can infiltrate. Especially maybe also because my family like was not connected with any business or any any uh, affairs connected with dealing with tourism. So I always, okay. I, I never even even on a on a personal or a, or a familial level, I never felt that these these stories are any good uh, to me, and I'm not not being very harsh. No, no, but, I mean that's fine. Uh, I, I don't. I'm very interested to know what the proportion would be of people whose whose livelihoods are dependent on tourists and people whose livelihoods are not within the old city. Do you know? Yeah, do you know what those numbers are? I, I don't have, know what those numbers I have are. no accurate number, but uh, like or, or an accurate percentage about that. But uh, because I'm like the, the reason why that popped on my head is because I have many friends who really work in like spice business or or souvenir business or or, or uh, uh, tapestries and and ceramics and stuff like that who are who, whose business relies uh, on tour on tourism and that that's even I think. Nowadays, the way I understand it, nowadays that's even even a, a more challenging thing than not being affiliated with tourism is because you have, you, you like, you, like, you have to kind of like to, uh, like, like you have to keep your your opinion to yourself and and just make the best of you know uh, whatever 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 you know whatever yeah. whatever you know comes yeah. to your place and and. And that, it's that's, also about power as well, yeah, though, isn't it? Because you lose you lose power. People who are dependent on these tourist streams coming into exactly. the city, and, and they, people have no power anyway. But they exactly. you do that, you're reliant on the outside economy. 
Sometimes tourists feel that they have the right to uh, tell you or to teach you as an local how to understand the city or how to deal with the city. You mm. know? And mm. they, they, so, and that's that's the most annoying uh, kind of tourist that that uh, that I, I I don't appreciate at all. And that actually influenced uh, my, like influenced my approach when I started traveling uh, as a, as a, as I grew up because I, we we mentioned like in our conversations before that I have always believed in the saying that says don't be a tourist, be a social traveler. And I think that's where where that originally comes. You know, before before learning about this concept. Mm. This, uh, this so how was that um i'm interested in in your practice in your art as well you you're now yeah. uh, you're now affiliated with cbrl yeah. but you've been involved in art and and and, and making art for a long time how yeah. does that or how did how did your um your formative experiences when you were young how did that feed into your practice what, well, what you're doing now gradually first as as soon as i started like I, I decided to become an artist in 2008 more or less and that was the, the moment like the the, the way that started is when I started studying in in, in, an, in the International Academy of Art in Ramallah, uh, which does not exist anymore nowadays. And and at that time, I was one of only two students uh, in the entire academy, which was very small. We were about like thirty students, I think, among the four the four years. And uh, and that really was my my opportunity to. Uh, like to take the first step to to deal or to mitigate uh, that this the, the the touristic ignorance or the touristic uh, yeah. approach towards the city of Jerusalem because I started um, either I was asked or I started offering um, the international visitors who come to teach or to do uh, exchanges at the academy to take them for a tour in 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 the old city and that tour was highly influenced or was kind of like bit by bit somehow designed in a way that it tries to negate everything connected with the like touristic narratives. It's it's like not a religious, not a religious tour, not a touristic tour. Um, and and it's it's a mixture between like my personal experiences with the city, where I played, where I grew up, what centers I went to when I start when I when I started to be a teenager, uh, what kind of political incidents that are uh, happened there and still stuck in in, in my head and um, to the extent that like to, it culminated to the like it culminated in a way that I'm not I'm not the only author of the tour as well mm. and, and this is mm. also part of like because the, like to, tourism is a highly is a highly like uh, controlled uh, business and and it's, it's a highly controlled um, aspect when it comes to Jerusalem and nowadays, particularly by the Israelis who are in power nowadays, they they uh, they make sure that tour guides say the exact narrative that that is that is aligned with their uh, with their imagination and and their narrative around the city. Uh, they send spies to make sure that those tour guides uh, say the um, the right things if they say anything political or if they say anything that is outside mm -hmm. of the they lose their license. Uh, they also control like groups uh, who goes to the city, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I, I was kind of like trying to get out of all those challenges. And I thought, oh, actually I can work as, a, I can operate as a mediator, not just as, oh, I know I'm, the, I'm from Jerusalem and I know the best narrative about it. So I, I ended up, I, I felt like I ended up within the tour, I ended up hooking people with, uh, with my friends who own souvenir shops and restaurants, and, hmm. and suddenly, suddenly, I'm just doing the introduction, the introduction between them, and then like leaving them to ask their questions or or right. buy something or eat something or 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 you know, uh, exchange contact whatever. So and 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 then let me let me let me ask you a question as well. So let me ask you about um, how Palestinians in wider Palestinian society. Um, perhaps outside Jerusalem, but also um, inside the, the, the boundaries of Jerusalem, how Palestinians view the old city. I've talked to lots of people who, um, who say, you know, for them, the old city, it's very important because the mosque is there. So it's very important because, because the church is there. Yep. But, you know, do uh, lots of people say they don't want to go there. You know, it's kind of, yep. it's, a, it's a tense and, and difficult place. Do ordinary people do their shopping? In the old city, you know, do you have friends who would who would 
go to the old city to hang out or have a coffee or something is it that sort of place or does it does it feel like a a front line of conflict or of, of tension it, it used to be this kind of place nowadays not as much because of course politics and reality have changed and 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 the city especially in 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 the in the eastern part like especially like especially below the Jewish quarter, to be frank, mm. uh, is facing very, very, very hard, harsh realities connected with the Israeli policies and connected with the level of, 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 of an, in, in, like uh, uh, violence and, and intensity uh, that is connected with like the, the, you know, the, the soldiers, uh, the, the closures that are connected with like uh, Israeli occasions and their marches uh, from Damascus Gate to, to the Wailing Wall. Uh, all, all these kind of things really discouraged people. And I can, you know, I don't want it to go overly political uh, about this, but but it's it's basically there are also other uh, day-to-day realities that are like Israel. Israel is allowing Palestinians to open businesses uh, in other areas, like really large businesses. So if you want to talk about like a, 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 a like a, a northern a northern uh, suburb of Jerusalem, like Beit Hanina and Shafat, Israel. Yeah last 10 years have allowed Palestinians to open like uh, malls and different businesses for food, for, uh, for uh, 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 shopping, like clothes and, and, and all different kinds of stuff that really um, kind of cut the ties between those people who live in those areas and the old city of Jerusalem. And that's, that's this is the point, isn't it? To, to redirect economic activity away. Strategically happening. Yeah. So and, and, and the Israeli imagination tries to deal or, or, or is projected towards uh, transforming Jerusalem into a, a mythical uh, open mu- museum. Uh, not not a day-to-day reality that you can deal with it to where you can go buy meats and spices and see your friend for a coffee or, or stuff yeah. like that yeah yeah and, exactly and, and and that's really uh one of the most like one of the most recognizable things that have changed between the time when i like you know when i was five six seven years old although that was although that intersected with the first intifada in palestine but Jerusalem was my play, my playground, and the Haram was my playground. I used to uh, smuggle like footballs inside the mosque and 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 play the entire day. And and, and my family would, uh, uh, would, would you know uh, would never feel extremely worried about us uh, right. doing that because it's like you know everybody every kid in the city does the same thing. Uh, right. Right. And and and. and I, I wonder if, if, if like five, six year old children are still doing the same things. I personally don't don't see it as much around me, yeah. but it's, it's definitely one of the most uh, remarkable memories that I can I, I can recall from mm. my childhood. Yeah, well, I mean, that's yeah. that's another question which I had for you as well, which is, um, you know, what can what can be done to keep Jerusalem tied into Palestinian identity? Because all of these forces seem to be working against mm. that retention of Jerusalem as a Palestinian place. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about this. I, I, I thought oddly that, that I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. The the funeral of of Shirin not long yeah. ago. Yeah. Oddly, because it was such a high visibility event, and it was focused on events within the old city or just outside. Yeah. yeah. Um, somehow that that helped to tie Jerusalem into a Palestinian identity in a way that it, it sort of felt that Jerusalem was coming more adrift in, in yeah. the time before that. Is that right or am I, am I I'm, off being... I'm glad you opened up this question because I was there at the funeral and I, unlike many, many occasions where we feel like there are a few occasions that happened in the, in the lifetime, you know, in, in my lifetime at least, where we felt that the J- Jerusalem uh, got liberated. Um, okay. And that's a and, big word. That's that, a big word to use. It is. It is definitely. It is because you always feel like you are. You are like in in a big jail. You you never. You there, it, 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 it's very unlikely that you would ha- take a walk in the old city without seeing a soldier, and uh, seeing a soldier dressed as if they are in a in a in a war front, not in the one of the most uh, you know holly and uh, historical and touristic cities in the world, supposedly. So uh, um, 
But that day, I really, I, I really felt, I really went back home super, super angry. And I think it's because during the, I at least personally, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm not, I'm not in a position to speak on on behalf of other people. But personally, I felt that the level of clash on the ground didn't give, didn't give anybody an opportunity to mourn, which is a very is a very um, uh, like um, uh, like um, essential right for human beings. Like just let's just to be mourned. Like you know, shit happens. Sorry for the word, but like uh, horrible things happen, and and now it's time for us to mourn. Uh, and 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 because the way the Israelis dealt with it from like from uh, the moment the funeral took off from the hospital until it left until it arrived to the old city, it felt that. There was no room for mourn because it was like every every single element of of the of the funeral was a moment of clash. It was something was happening. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Drone flying above, or soldiers trying to steal a Palestinian flag from a kid, or not allowing a, a veiled woman who wears like a, a hijab yeah. that has the colors of the Palestinian flag to pass. Uh, all the barricades, all the soldiers and the horses and, and the different kind of units that existed in the city. And, and that was really... Um, so what was what was the liberation? You, you spoke about liberation. What, what, what... No, the, the liberation is to feel that we, like, we can, we can uh, enjoy the city even in a funeral. I'm not, mm. I'm not talking particularly about Shirin Abu funeral, but I, like in, in, my, in, the, in the back of my head, I, I can recall Faisal Hussaini's funeral. Which because and and I think the Israelis didn't expect it. Now, now that like with Shirin Abu Akhlis, the funeral, there was uh, this there was this like like the kind of like the they anticipated. They have seen what happened in the past and they have anticipated and they have acted accordingly with all with, with imposing all the restrictions that they have imposed that day. But if I want to talk about Faisal Hussein's uh, funeral, I don't think they anticipated that and thousands of people entered Jerusalem yeah. Yeah. from the old city. I have seen people like when the moment they arrive at the police station at Salah Street near 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 Herodes Gate, Zahre, everybody with a Palestinian ID card, like the green one, they were holding it and showing it to the soldiers on the roofs to tell them like we entered and we are here. And it it, yeah. it didn't feel like as much as the, as 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 I'm not saying that no one felt sad about the fact that this was a funeral, but the fact that through that funeral we managed to liberate the city, we managed to. Uh, mm take all the streets and do whatever we want and, and like mourn and, and chant and sing our songs the way we want it felt extremely liberating. And, mm. and we, we did a lot of that in Shirin Abu Akhmed's funeral, but it, it, we, it, I think the level of clash was, was way higher that it, it didn't really yeah. didn't yeah. allow us to express our feelings or our, our, our sadness or our mourning uh, the, way, the way we should, we, we should have. This has got, um... It's very, very interesting to hear you talk. It's got very political discussion, which is great. Um, I want to, I want to steer back a little bit towards art, and then I'm also conscious that we have a Q and A running as well. So yeah, maybe yeah, yeah, I know. shortly I'm, I'm... we'll go, we'll go to Tofik as well. I just want to read a section um, from the book, and I'm going to switch glasses to do it, um, which is by Jack Persekian, mm -hmm. who I'm sure you'll know. Um, and for people who don't know, Jack is um, he's he's been a sort of a figure at the centre of of curating and and guiding and directing Palestinian contemporary art, uh, particularly in Jerusalem, for a long, long, long time. Yep. Um, and he now owns a gallery, and he's a museum curator, and he has very high level positions. <clears throat> but he was very generous with me as well. He talked to me for a long time, which was great. Um, and I was very happy to to reproduce a quote of his, which is about a couple of minutes long. I'm, I want to read it out of it if I can, and then maybe also we can have a. I'd like to hear your take on it as well, um, yep. and then maybe we'll go to Tolfik as well. So this is, um, this is from Jack. This is a quote from Jack Persekian. Jerusalem is becoming a mere symbol only, a religious symbol, a symbol of God and religion and nothing more, a token capital of Palestine. Holiness empties the city out because the holiness of the symbol becomes far more important than the living population. There's a whole generation of Palestinians, even two, who don't know what Jerusalem looks like. They see it in pictures, but it doesn't mean a thing. It's very disturbing. Jerusalem is becoming less and less of a place where you can see people living, enjoying their life, 
creating a future for the younger generation. De-symbolizing Jerusalem comes through education. That's what art is trying to do, to make people think outside these prescribed narratives, to look at things from different ways, express ideas and thoughts and feelings. It's about liberating yourself. Once more individuals are liberated from within, you can eventually start to evolve a society that is on its way to freedom. Otherwise, you can talk about freedom and liberation from here to Timbuktu. But if the people are shackled with all the baggage of religion and taboos and dominion by these bankrupt political parties, then it won't mean anything. Yes, the people of Jerusalem are on their way to freedom and liberation. Art can liberate, but there's a huge obstacle, and that is finding means and possibilities for those people who are gradually realizing their potential. They're hitting up against finding a job, affording the city, decent living conditions, being able to manage with all the complex maze of laws and regulations the Israeli government imposes in order to live as a Palestinian in Jerusalem. People see no possibility for growth here, even if you're brilliant, a creator, if you've just invented something or you're an industrialist and you want to open a factory, you can't do it in Jerusalem. You'll have to go into the West Bank or you will leave the country. It's a catch-22. People who I've seen manage to liberate themselves and gain that potential opt to leave Jerusalem and make their lives abroad. Those who stay here, a good number of them are stuck, hopeless, helpless, desperate, depressed. One keeps trying and keeps working, but you're pushing against this huge wall. We, meaning the people in the art community that he's working with, have managed to keep a voice coming out from Jerusalem in art, in all the circles that art revolves in locally and internationally. And the voice insists that Jerusalem, with all of its historical religious baggage, has a contemporary art identity and is engaging multiple issues through the lens of art and the work of artists. It's saying that Jerusalem is worthy of attention. Unquote. That's the end of the quote from Jack. Um, I think that's fascinating. I think it's a really insightful and really interesting point. Does that resonate with you as well? It, it, most of it resonates with me, but I don't think that I don't think I share, like Jack is a, is a dear friend of mine. And I have actually, it, it's amazing to hear you saying that he was generous with you because I have taken so many foreigners from the art world to, to Al-Mamal Foundation to have conversations with Jack because, uh, you know, he has, been, uh, he has been living in Jerusalem and operating as an artist and curator for, for, for ages. Uh, Two things I want to say in relation mm. to this quote. First, it reminded me that I didn't answer part of the previous question when you asked me about like what out what local outsiders think about Jerusalem. Uh, I drifted, we drifted towards like Shirin Abu Akhle's funeral and those feelings specifically about that event. But in general, I think that local outsiders have the same attitude as tourists, but for completely different reasons. It's not for like uh, it's it's not it's not about the Western imagine, and Jack talks particularly about that. It's not connected with Western and colonial imagination. It's more connected with colonial restrictions because because okay. because they have many people have been cut out from visiting Jerusalem, praying in Jerusalem, uh, or even going to a restaurant and hang out in the city and and in, enjoy what it could offer, and therefore that really created the same touristic, you know. That 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 like kind of like gave Jerusalem this importance or of like uh, this like uh, like lost heaven or or yeah. this like restricted uh, holy city that uh, we have been prevented from from visiting and that equally that diverts people gazes and people's attentions from the day to day life and day to day, to day struggle because they want to kind of like fulfill their lo, lo, like their their uh, uh, longing for 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 a connection having a religious connection uh, with, with the city and the second thing i want to say is, is about art because i think it's it's very it's a very I, like i want when when i wanted to talk like when in my in my planning for 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 this talk i wanted to talk about like you know about how how first i resolved my my issues with like touristic view and 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 western view in the city by taking to by making tours to my teachers or 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 my fellow uh, international friends but and then i wanted to talk about about how how that 
infiltrated into my artwork and what I created. But what I can tell nowadays, like over 20 years, or sorry, over 10 years uh, or 12 years from practicing art is that art managed only to liberate me. It didn't hmm. manage to, it didn't <laughs> help me to liberate my people. And, right. and, and it's because, because art as a field, it's really, uh, it has, it's, it, its own rules and, and, and codes and stuff like that and that always uh, uh, restricts you know non restricts or facilitates for, for 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 what art could do and how, what in what way art could influence people and 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 what art what, even in the even even defining the very meaning of what is art what 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 is art like when we look at it what what can be defined as as art uh, and that's um, like Art really gave me voice as a voiceless person uh, uh, because it allowed me to deal creatively with things stuck in, 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 my, yeah. in, my, in, my, in my body or in my head. Uh, but um, because, because it is a very exclusive, uh, like, you know, it, it's like when, when Palestine was, you know, like talk about liberation, uh, liberation needs a liberation project, and and through an an, an an art art the art and literature is only one aspect of 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 like uh, of of a liberation process. Uh, mm. I but I can't, all I can say is that at least you liberated yourself. That's one yes, person. Yes, and yes, yes. I suppose Jack is saying that you know art has this capacity. If it can liberate one individual, it can liberate more. Yeah. There's a rolling snowball effect. He's exactly, hoping. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We shouldn't relax about like the fact. You know, I, I, I don't want to be relaxed about the fact that I got liberated because I have practiced art. But mm. I want to, I want to explore. I want as as a practitioner, I want to explore the potential of what I do to yep. to do uh, to to benefit other people around me. Like you know, uh, especially that I feel I I belong and I feel that this is a. This is a this is like my responsibility as a as an artist from Jerusalem is to kind of like you know uh, as I said at the beginning of this uh, conversation I am who I am because I all of my experience in Jerusalem and I feel that this this always puts a responsibility on me that I have to find ways to give it back not just not just to make art about it it's it's heavy baggage on your shoulders it is, I can see it that, is. Yeah. 